And one of the things about, about the Middle Ages is the, the control of information by, and, and power by a very small group of people. And we're back into that type of situation again. Huxley warned that a technological dictatorship can never be overthrown. Um, mm. And I think we're moving into that kind of era where um, the control of information, the ability to monitor everything. I mean, I don't know if you're dealing with this, Ashley, but you know, I'm trying to think about, I'm thinking of going back to blue books, to having the kids write their, their exams in the classroom. Because I am too, yeah. <laughs> you are, because I'm sitting there yeah. saying, how much of this is Google? How much of this is chat? Um, yeah. Because If it uh, sounds like a politician's speech, it's probably uh, chat GPT. Right. <laughs> so just to give you some insight into what got me interested in this, uh, in, in, in your book, well, I read your book, actually, I think when it first came out, I, I saw some, um, actually some YouTube videos <laughs> where you were talking about it. And I thought, oh, I have to, I have to read this because in my own research, I study sort of, you know, cultural forms and I try to dig down to get at sort of if they reflect or are telling some kind of story about deeper changes in society, something right. like that. And I noticed, I kept saying, that's medieval that's feudal that's um and you know the the way that people were being treated cancel culture reminded me of like medieval carnival uh, medieval yeah. forms of punishment a few years ago i wrote about how troubled tv host caroline flack accused of assaulting her partner tragically took her own life this was after online bullying and apparently successful calls to have her removed from her television gigs had she felt effectively ended her career. Unlike other examples that typically spring to mind, the calls to cancel Flack were less about what she had said than something she'd allegedly done. But it wasn't enough for the state to investigate, and if found guilty, for her to face criminal consequences. Before all this, she had to be made an example of. Flack's arrest had to be a teachable moment, not just for her, but for all of us. As though the masses would see her hosting Love Island and suddenly feel a bit punchy. At the time, I remarked that the treatment of Flack had been medieval. We seem to be regressing to pre-modern ideas of what it means to be human. A lack of belief in the human ability to handle freedoms leads to this disappearing of bad influences. The public acquires a childlike quality. We cannot be exposed to even a hint of wrongdoing or we will enact it in our own lives. Why has medieval execution become the model for power today? because we have lost the liberal subject that partially did these old ways of meeting out justice in. And it got me wondering, maybe this is reflecting some deeper change in society. So when I saw your book, I thought, ah, I'm not the only one who's noticed this. So could you tell me a little bit about how you came to writing that book? Was it a similar kind of experience? Well, it was really um, in part, you know, following what was happening, particularly here in California, where I live, uh, where there was an enormous concentration of wealth and power. At the same time, we have the highest poverty rate of any state in the country, um, highest uh, level of illiteracy. Um, that other words, society, and the reason I think California is important is California is kind of the cutting edge of Western society and has been for quite a long time. Um, and it, um, you know, if if the tech revolution was going to create a, better society it would do it here and it, it hasn't done that it's you know it's created a more bifurcated society then 
many of the things you mentioned, like, you know, the cancel culture, the whole sort of idea that a university has to adhere to a particular set of values, you know, very much reminded me of, you know, the medieval church. I mean, I think it was in the 12th or 13th century, the University of Paris was actually doing uh, events around, around, you know, the idea of demons. I mean, it was, you know, we forget that universities in particular, and I, you know, we both have been involved with them, um, are not necessarily liberal in the traditional sense. Um, they went through a period where liberalism was the prevailing uh, ideology and you were, could have everything from conservatives to Marxists, you know, coexisting basically in the same place. Um, but what we see now is something much more akin to universities um, in the Soviet Union, uh, China, um, and and even, uh, you know, Nazi Germany, you know, where you have to back a certain point of view. And, and if you look at the, um, when I was doing research on the book, I was just astounded that you know, in many uh, departments, particularly in things like sociology, you're talking about, you know, people on the left being 30 to one over people who are moderate or conservative. Um, you have a unanimity of mind that did not exist even when I went to Berkeley in the early 70s. Um, we had, you know, conservatives didn't feel persecuted. They may have felt out of place. They may have felt they were certainly not the majority, but the, the idea that a conservative professor would be able to uh, to teach uninterrupted, that you could have a conservative speaker, that that was more um, uh, permissible then than it is now. And I think what's happened is the you know the, the the people who brought up in either liberal or conservative culture have generally uh, you know they're sort of retiring. I would say like. I noticed that the older faculty are in many cases more concerned with issues of free speech and free thought than the younger faculty who I think either embrace this kind of neo-feudalist mentality or they're too afraid to say anything. I mean, one of the things I, I say, you know, I said to one of the younger faculty the other day is I'm at, I'm, I'm at an age where you know, I can get away with it because, you know, I'm not going to be there much longer. You know, I'm not going to be there in 10 years, 15 years. But if you're a young academic and you're or a young person in a corporate environment increasingly and you disagree with the party line, you're screwed. You know, you're going to have a very, very rough time. That's very futile. I mean, you know, I don't think they had open discussions about about. Uh, you know, the, the nature of God, you know, you decided on it. And then, you know, it, there was an orthodoxy. And if you didn't believe in the orthodoxy, it wasn't like there would be a great open debate about it. I, I say these sorts of things a lot. And one of the, I, I'm very much in agreement with you, but one of the pushbacks that I frequently get is, oh, is it so bad that you can't say racist things in the workplace? Is it really so bad that you can't say these, you know, transphobic things? Are you just, are you just going to die if you can't insult somebody? <laughs> um, and then they say, well, we're overstating the case. Well, and this is actually quite progressive. What do you say to that? Well, I mean, first of all, I mean, it's, it's absurd to think that somebody gets to define what racism is. What is racism? If, 
if let's say I'm against reparations because I don't think it's good social policy, politically divisive, doesn't really solve the, the problems and cannot be afforded. Um, is that racist? Is it racist? You know, now they'll say to people, it's racist if you think that merit is important. It's racist if you think that math is is a um, uh, an objective measurement. Um, um, it, is it racist if you think that people should be allowed to go to uh, let into universities or get jobs because of their race? If you take the sort of anti-racism, you know, Kendi worldview, then anything that disagrees is racist. It's just like in the Soviet Union, anybody who disagreed with Stalin was obviously, you know, either a Trotskyite uh, or a, or a capitalist wrecker, and sometimes both, which was, you know, quite an extension of logic. Um, but I, I think that that's really what we're seeing now. Is we're seeing a uh, a, a situation where it's become, becoming increasingly difficult um, to hold heterodox opinions, not just, you know, universities have been crazy for a while and, you know, and, you know, they're actually, I think, beginning to lose some of their relevance as students have figured out that they're probably not worth the time and effort in many cases. But, but I think the movement into the corporate world, into the government world, into you know, I see the people, for instance, who President Biden's appointing. These aren't, you know, Democrats who represent the working class. These are these are people who come out of the out of the indoctrination camps of the universities, and they come with a particular ideology. Like, how do you possibly think that you can have a public policy that will get wide support, which says that somebody should get, um, you know, access to loans or access uh, to uh, to jobs simply by the nature of their race. I mean, of course, you know, these are the same people who don't think we should be studying the Constitution in, or, or, or the history of, of British common law because it's racist itself. I mean, if you take the worldview that anything that is off the party line is racist, well, then, you know, you sort of define it for yourself. I mean, um, I, I think that, you know, I think obviously that, you know, racism exists, although I have to, uh, it would seem to me that the most racially conscious policies are those of the people on the left in, in, in many cases, you know, they, mm -hmm. everything is judged by your, your background, by your, you know, in, in the, in the Soviet Union, it was, what was your class background? You know, were your parents, what they used to call former people, you know, people who, um, uh, you know, maybe were not necessarily just aristocrats, but merchants or people or, or even people with successful small farms. Um, you know, you, though, you, those people were discriminated against in favor of those who had the right class background. Um, and we see that now. We see where, you know, it, it's clear that, 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 that the sanctity of, of history, for instance, doesn't matter. Uh, you know, you you know, you you add elements that are that probably didn't exist or existed barely, and you make them prominent. Um, you know, uh, you just reinvent the past to fit the the current um, ideology, which, by the way, was very medieval in itself. I mean, there wasn't yeah. the medieval era didn't say, "Well, let's study and try to get objectively what really happened." No, 
It's how did it fit into the 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 theology of the church, um, and that's what we have now. Um, now it's not as well organized as the church. I would also argue, in many ways, it's less erudite than the church. Mm. It's interesting that this um, idea of or appearance of progressiveness can often mask a backslide. So for I, you know, I have personal experience of this sort of thing. Being an indigenous person, um, I look really white. It's kind of embarrassing to say that, but my dad is Ojibwe. And uh, it's like, you know, racism does exist. And sure. I've seen it throughout my whole life because I look white. So people will say stuff about indigenous people all the time. They don't know that they're insulting my family. And like nothing makes me angrier. And also my husband is like, you know, he's got an accent and he's a bit dark skinned. And so we've had like, you know, a few racist incidents. Um, so it does exist and there's nothing that makes you angrier than that. I can't even explain it. It's like this awful visceral hatred for people who are like this. And so I get the impulse to kind of really want to show these people, you know, and, and to stick it to them and to get the upper hand. But on the other hand, a lot of these discourses mask the fact that they themselves are racist. <laughs> so like, I'll give you the example of indigenous people um, again. Uh, I wrote a paper about this a few years ago, but you know, a lot of the stuff that they say about Indigenous people is just recycling colonialism and colonial tropes through a modern discourse of trauma and care. So when Indigenous people were being colonized, they were like, oh, you can't take care of your children because um, the Indigenous woman can't is not a good mother. She can't uh, raise good Christian children or she can't raise um, good liberal citizens. So that's why we have to take the children away from you and they have to be raised by the state and then they'll be assimilated and so on. And then, and now they're saying, oh, you, you still can't take care of your children, but it's because of the bad co colonial state. They damaged you and we're so sorry, you're traumatized. Now come bang your drum for us. And oh, let's get a photo off of Trudeau shedding a tear and so on. <laughs> and I'm pointing this out I'm like, this is racist. You're still saying the same things. And, but it, it draws you in, right? Because it's so flattering. They'll talk all about how your culture was so beautiful and it's being destroyed and your culture was the essence of who you are. So you're nothing now, you know? So, excuse me. The present importance of colonial history and policies is positioned as the loss of parenting skills, reproducing the traumatic effects of the initial colonial disruption on each generation. Although not all Indigenous people experienced, for instance, residential schools or child welfare removals, there's a tendency to posit these experiences as general. For example, as one public health policy institute writes, discriminatory child welfare policies, shattering intergenerational effects of the residential school system, and the broader impact of colonization, all compromise the ability of contemporary Aboriginal women to live out their foundational role as mothers. There is therefore demonstrable continuity with past policies of many colonial states, not only in the portrayal of current policies in kindly terms, but also where initial focus on neglectful mothers is generalized to all Indigenous women, now seen as inherently vulnerable and passive recipients of allegedly deficient cultural forms. We're still experiencing the effects of the residential school from our parents and grandparents. We're all damaged, and we'll pass it on to our children, so it will never end. Like, no, I am a dynamic human being like anybody else. Like, when, when my grandma's family was forced to settle down, 
they like took snowmobiles and cars and they're like, this is great. We can get around so we can go on journeys so much faster because they were dynamic humans, just like anybody else. And now I'm being invited to put myself in this little box and to say everything that was important about me was in the past. Well, I, I think was, that's racist. Well, and I, I just think that the best thing is try to understand things as they actually were. So, for instance, I, um, I, I've read quite a bit on, on Native uh, American culture. I've, I uh, actually uh, uh, been up in North Dakota where, you know, which one of the funny things <laughs> is they had the 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 the. Um, the logo for the um, for uh, North Dakota State was the the um, you know, the Fighting Sioux, and the Sioux I knew said we're we're proud we, we you know we were you know they were a very aggressive warrior race who picked on the other <laughs> the other Native <laughs> Americans um, you know particularly like the Mandan, um, but the reality is that 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 the, the whether it's the Mexican culture or the African culture or the in, indigenous culture, these these were people who were aggressive and they also you know and and they you know they they weren't like the, all the the sort of woke guardians of the planet they they were doing things that made sense to them and they were mm -hmm. human beings like everyone else it's just like you know sometimes I I wrote an article recently for uh, Unheard about Jewish criminals. And the whole, you know, and, and you know, the 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 Jewish establishment would like everyone to believe that we were victims or geniuses. Those those are our choices. Um, and the fact is that there were a lot of Jewish criminals because, like every immigrant group who came in, didn't have everything wired for them. Uh, a certain element went and and uh, were involved in organized crime. Um, you know, so the the. What, what I think is missing is three-dimensionality. You know, if, if you want to make a nice little medieval parallel, you look at medieval art and it's very two-dimensional. I mean, it really doesn't have the depth and the perception and the, the sort of various um, uh, different ways that human beings look. You know, it was very stylized. And, that, and that's sort of what we have. We have this stylized view. You know, Native Americans are matriarchal protectors of the planet or i had one student you know a lovely kid and i gave her a very good grade she was very smart but she you know she gave a lecture on on um on feminism and 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 women's rights and things like that and she was ranting and raving about how you know western capitalist culture had done this and that and i said i just want to know have you ever been to east asia have you have you ever been to japan I mean, the the idea that that these other cultures were somehow, you know, much more friendly to women's rights. Well, that may have been case in some places. Women had maybe different roles, but but you know, the 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 cultures in the developing world are have a pretty strong tendency towards towards a, a male domination. Okay, you know, that's just that's a byproduct of lots of different you know hunter gatherer societies and. The need to protect yourself and all that, but but the reality is we are so much better off, and it's so much more beautiful to see the world as it is and as it was, as opposed to what we imagine it should be and imagine what it was. And mm -hmm. this idea that there is no sort of uh, priority on the notion of of learning about things as they actually were, not you know you don't. You know, 
change you don't change reality by making cleopatra uh, an african when not uh, my backgrounds in classical history cleopatra was clearly at least partially if not wholly greek not that didn't mean she spoke egyptian she spoke hebrew she spoke greek um but you know the 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 the, the reality of just constantly changing everything to fit a, an ideology is very very dangerous and very characteristic of of what national socialism did, what what Chinese communism did, what Russian communism did, and what was the prevailing idea in, in the Middle Ages. Until the Renaissance, you couldn't really make the case that that some of the classical theories and, and classical science was in was was more advanced. Um, you couldn't say it because that would be considered to be a negative about the prevailing uh, feudal culture. And 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 the problem we have today is we we sort of lost the the moorings of of rationality of, of, about debate about nuance. I I I always stress to the students in particular. I say history is about nuance. It, it's about you know was somebody good or somebody bad? Well, maybe they were good in some areas and they were bad in others. In many cases, they reflected the worldview of of 1860 so in 1860 the you know abraham lincoln's views on race were extremely advanced compared to his opponents but you know would kendy uh, approve of abraham what abraham lincoln said probably not um mm -hmm. so i think that that's a big part of it and then once you start stripping away the idea of merit and the idea of fair competition um and of open thought then you you move into a kind of a feudal space um and that's really where we are and and it's and it and it's reflected in the in the economic world as well i mean you have fewer and fewer opportunities for for the middle class to buy a house start a business move move up we've almost completely moved away from that and now the real question is how do we deal with you know with with the masses whose lives are going to get uh, worse, which by the way, the Bank of England just just issued a report saying British people should get used to being poor. Yeah, I mean, I know, and there's almost like this veiled kind of like, well, you've had it too good for too long anyway. So, <laughs> but on the point about uh, Cleopatra, it's interesting because the desperate need for Cleopatra to look black is actually a denial of the fact that the Greek and um, uh, Egyptian civilization belongs to Africans as much as it belongs to anybody else because we're all humans. <laughs> like what what do, what do my ancestors have to do with ancient Greece? Like they have nothing to do with it, right? Why, why does ancient Greece belong to me or sorry, Egypt <laughs> belong to me any more than it belongs to someone whose skin is darker? it has it makes no sense my people my my ancestors were like celtic and ojibwe and you know why why do i share in that heritage more than someone from africa it's this denial of a kind of universalism that's hidden in this which is also <laughs> ironically a rehashing of older racist ideas of and and a, and a kind of undermining of that universal impulse of the enlightenment that I thought eventually would come to fruition where we would recognize a kind of universal humanity. And it seems to me we're going backward a little bit in that, in, in that regard yeah, as well. And, and, and what's sad is that, that kids are now being educated 
in such a way that that uh, they don't even have the knowledge to argue back. Like let's say the 1619 project, one of one of my least favorites. Um, you know, it's clearly like the idea that this that the revolution was fought. You know, um, this protect slavery. Well, the British Empire had slavery at the same time. Um, it, you know, that now there may have been uh, they may have promised freedom to those Africans who African Americans who decided to fight for the British, but that's a very common theme throughout. It wasn't anything about liberation. Obviously, the American economy was not based predominantly on slavery because, as I recall, the Civil War didn't turn out so well for the South. Um, you know, the the North was much more advanced. I would much more take Marx's interpretation of American history than I would take, um, you know, the, the 1619 Project's interpretation. Um, this this idea of in um, that that there is a that we we are you know what our identity is and what we say our identity is is just you know it 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 it's so limiting, and in some ways it becomes just completely absurd. Obviously, the most absurd advantage you know, the example these days is on.